0: Welcome to the RUF Berkeley podcast. RUF is a campus fellowship centered around experiencing and expressing the love of God to our campus, our classmates, and our community. For more information, check out our website at rufberkeley.com or find us on Instagram at rufberkeley. Psalm 123, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master. As the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. So we just read Psalm 123, and uh, it's the next song on the road, if you will. And we've uh, said it before, and we'll keep saying it throughout this series. Uh, but the, the Psalms of Ascent were um, prayer like songs that ancient Israelites would have sung corporately as they made their way to Jerusalem for worship. And uh, these songs were a map of sorts uh, of the normal Christian life. And they, they tell us, they, they still are, right? And they, they tell us where we come from. <clears throat> what's truest about ourselves. They tell us what to expect. They tell us where to turn. And they tell us uh, where we're headed. And uh, these psalms have a way of of tuning our hearts, of, of staining our hearts, if you remember the language that I used from a few weeks ago. They stain our hearts with imagery and poetry and metaphor that, that tells us the, the truest story of who we are and who God is and what he's done for us. Um, and as poetry... Right, It it gets into our bones in ways that simple, propositional truths just don't. Um, So it it tells us something about the extent to which God goes to communicate, to reveal himself to us in a myriad of ways, one of those ways being poetry. Um, Songs just have a way of getting in you um, in in ways that other things don't, and these psalms have a way of uttering the depths of our emotional life and a way of declaring the heights of um, God's eternal love for his people. And uh, this psalm, Psalm 123, uh, it is about a key feature of the Christian life and um, that's suffering. Suffering. We talk a lot about suffering, especially in the psalms. And there's three things that I want you to see about suffering in this psalm in particular. The first is that I want you to know that you should expect suffering in the Christian life. Number two, I want you to know how to see suffering. And number three, I want you to know how to approach suffering. So I want you to know that you should expect suffering, how to see suffering, and how to approach suffering. So let's start with the first, um, expect suffering. Um The first thing I want you to realize is that if there's one thing that we know already through this series, it's that your apprenticeship to the way of Jesus will be marked by suffering. We are now four Psalms into this series, and three of them, uh, 120, 121, and then 123, Three of them are overwhelmingly centered around the reality of suffering and of sadness and of sorrow, um, of insecurity and anxiety. It's kind of everywhere in the Psalms. And that says one thing really loud and clear to me, and that's that being a Christian does not mean you escape the pain and the sorrow and the sadness and the suffering of the world. And, and if anything, it actually means that you come into even closer contact with it, right? Just look at the psalms that we've gone through. Uh, just four in, uh, psalms that capture the normal Christian experience, this normal journey, and three of them already have heavy suffering, sadness, kind of trauma language. <clears throat> and the reason I think that we need to hear this tonight is because uh, modern forms of, of Christian spirituality tend to give us a vision of the Christian life as one that's lived on the mountaintops, um, as one that's overwhelmed with warm fuzzies for Jesus. And the result of that is is really twofold. Uh, One, usually um, naive Christians kind of embrace the faith under the assumption that everything will start going smoothly for them once they embrace God, that life will cheer up, and now that they've gotten right with God, all these blessings will kind of start pouring out in their lives. Uh, class will start going well. Um, maybe their dating life will start going well. Friendships will begin to turn in a positive direction. Uh, but when things don't begin to happen that way, uh, they begin to question things. And many walk away disillusioned by what they were promised. Uh, secondly, uh, many non-Christians uh, to their credit, they they actually sniff this out from the get-go and they aren't buying it, so they double down on their position that Christianity is just um, a bunch of naive uh, delusionment that ignores the real pain and frustration that the real world sees every day. Um, That's why we need to focus on this, and I'm not suggesting that the Christian life is some like horrible hotbed of depression. That's that's not what I'm trying to say, as if there's no joy. There's joy to be found in every station, as the old hymn says, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, which we've sung in RUF several times. Um, but you see this empty view of the Christian life captured by so many mainstream speakers, by so much of contemporary Christian music, and by so many influential Christian personalities, and especially uh, for those of you who actually grew up in the church, uh, you see this in so many youth groups. This is kind of how youth groups often will package Christianity to young people. Um, One of my favorite authors, uh, James K. Smith, has a great quote on this where he says, we've created youth ministry that confuses extroversion with faithfulness. I'll say that one more time. We've created youth ministry that confuses extroversion with faithfulness. We have effectively communicated to young people that that sincerely following Jesus is synonymous with being fired up for Jesus, with being excited for Jesus, as if discipleship were synonymous with fostering an exuberant, perky, cheerful, Hooray for Jesus' disposition, like what we might find in the glee club or at a pep rally. Um, It's a great quote that really captures well what I'm trying to get it across. Another one, I read a tweet recently um, by a very prominent Christian publication that said, quote, a calling from God will always be accompanied by his peace as well as anything else we need a calling from God will be accompanied by his peace as well as anything else we need. Now that sounds really sweet and it's certainly luring of us, right? We, we kind of are quick to believe something like that. But I want you to tell me this, what was the garden of Gethsemane, was that a picture of peace for Jesus? Is peace how we would describe Jesus's calling to go to the cross? And so friends, more often than not, what the psalmist is trying to communicate here is that living by faith usually feels like death, not like peace. God does promise us peace in the Christian life in some sense, but it's not always accompanied um, with what we're called to and the road that we travel. And in some ways, it's a piece that surpasses understanding. So it's not as though we will feel this warm feeling inside when we know that we're exactly where God wants us. And I want you to see that, right? And the Psalm shows us that, that suffering should be expected. It's a part of the package. And uh, that's actually a good thing, as we'll see a little bit later. So you should expect suffering. That's the first thing that I want you to see. And secondly, I want you to know, Uh, what I want you to know is how to approach, or sorry, how to see suffering. Um, There's a similar problem here that we see also in uh, the expectation of suffering or the lack thereof, the lack of expectation. And uh, I want to be very pastoral in how I address this because so um, so much hinges upon our ability to recognize suffering. Both the suffering that we experience at the hands of others and also the suffering that we bring on ourselves by destructive patterns in our lives. And here's the main problem that I see. Okay, the main problem that I see is that when we think of suffering, the images that we associate with that term are usually very extreme. Uh, we think of poverty, we think of malnutrition. Uh, in underdeveloped countries, we think of genocide, we think of oppression, we think of exploitation, we think of uh, marginalization, and all of those things uh, for sure and certainly fall under the category of suffering. Um, However, what we usually dismiss and don't think about is like the day-to-day mundane trials that we experience that shape so much of our lives no matter where we live or how much money we have or how little money we have. And moreover, we actually often overlook ourselves and how the problem starts right here. C.S. Lewis um, has a great quote, the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. The real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment that you wake up each morning. So I want to be really practical here for a moment, uh, and I want to highlight for you ways that you may be suffering, um, that you're experiencing the brokenness of the world, either that is due to your own decisions in life or the decisions of others, uh, I want to highlight for you ways that you may be suffering and haven't allowed yourself to own it. Trials that you experience that aren't necessarily extreme examples of this. Um, again, I'm not going to say, uh, remember the time that you woke up and hadn't eaten for a month. You know That stuff happens in the world and undoubtedly that's suffering. But there's so much too. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that to live and wait for Jesus is by default a life that's lived marked by suffering. A world that is not yet made new is to live in submission uh, to a world where the curse still reigns in many ways. And so if you haven't put those words to it, uh, the language of suffering, um, the benefit of doing this is that once you see the effects of the fall in every corner of life, then uh, you'll begin to see the fullness of God's redemptive work in every corner of life. If you want to know the reach of God's love, you have to see the depths of our depravity. You have to see the depths of our suffering. You have to see the depths of our brokenness and our sin. So I want to just highlight some of these things that maybe just kind of gloss over our imagination as we walk through each day. So what about, what about dating? What about dating as a Christian, as a student at Berkeley, Right? How many of you have actually considered, or put this language to it, considered the toll being a Christian places on your dating life at Berkeley? How you following Jesus in dating means, among many other things, uh, dating another Christian, and that you may be waiting for a long time while you're here. Have you weighed that cost? Have you considered that in the category, like when you experience the sadness of being alone? Because let's just get straight, right? Like we all love to be like really proud that like we're strong in our singleness and there's nothing wrong with singleness, but we all want to be loved. We want to be loved by a significant other. We want to be loved by our friends. We all want to be loved by our parents and we all want to be loved by God. And so there's a sadness that comes along with that, especially when we look at the story of the Bible from the very beginning when God says it's not good for us to be alone. And yet some of us are alone, and some of us will be alone for a long time. There's some sadness there. There's suffering there. Um, We can even speak to uh, engagements right now, right? We've had a handful of engagements in RUF over the past couple of weeks, and uh, congrats to you that have been engaged, um, gotten engaged. Uh, But one of the hard lessons to learn about marriage is that A marriage isn't lived on the mountaintops of an engagement party. Uh, As fun as that is, a marriage is really lived out by dying to yourself one day at a time for the rest of your life. And don't kid yourself. Like, that is daunting. Uh, My old boss, Kevin Twitt, when I was an RUF intern at Belmont, whenever he would uh, do weddings, he would always say, you can either get married uh, out of faithfulness or you can get married out of utter naivete, which is to say that like if you think that these particular feelings will persist the entire your entire life, you're foolish. You're very naive. Or you can get married in faithfulness to someone whose feelings and covenant of love never change, and that's Jesus. And you root your relationship on that. But nonetheless, right, it's hard. It's a great song by Andrew Peterson called Dancing in the Minefields. That's a metaphor for what marriage is. I'd encourage you to listen to it. Uh, what about your families, right? So often, I mean, that's a main conversation that I have with students, um, conversations about their families. And many of you, as do I, uh, come from broken homes, from, uh, divorced parents. And, uh, many of you have not spent the time to think about how that's skewed your view of intimacy or of love or of honesty Right, It's actually impacted you in ways that you've never admitted to yourself. Like one of the most vital relationships in your life as you've grown up, you've seen it modeled in a really poor way. And there's been no repentance or forgiveness or confession in the midst of that. And you're kind of left alone to like put those pieces back together yourself. And you don't have the tools or the categories to do it. And so you just kind of let it go. But being a Christian means you wade into that. And you begin putting the pieces back together, like the psalmist does. Some of you have never wrestled with the pain uh, that you have from emotionally distant parents. Like maybe your parents stayed together, but now you have these deep scars due to their neglect, um, whether it was intentional or not. Right? Perhaps your parent, your parents were just. Uh, overwhelmed in the moment and denied you the attention um, or the care or the love that you feel like you desperately needed in a moment in your life. Um, Some of you, uh, in fact, probably all of you uh, as Berkeley students, you're pulled between the enticing you can have it all narrative of Berkeley and careerism and uh, a faithful life lived in obedience to God's call on your life. And that is suffering, that tension, right? That, that, that feeling of living in God's world and not knowing which road to take, that is a product of the fall. That's the simple day-to-day sufferings that we all encounter. And you're weighing the costs of following Christ as you think through why do I take a job and for what reasons do I take that job? Some of you, uh, you know, if we talk about friendship, right? Some of you have never had a real friend, and you've never, you've never admitted that to anyone. You kind of go to bed each night alone with that thought. You've never had a real friend. You could be in a room full of people, and you could feel totally alone. Uh, you could be as um, raw and transparent as could be, but you're never actually vulnerable with anybody. No one's ever gotten in, or you've never connected with anybody. It's suffering, right? The inability to connect with people. The anxiety that we feel. The reason why we turn to alcohol so often when we go to frat parties or or whatever, like consulting parties, whatever happens at Berkeley. Right? I mean, it makes us feel like a superhero. It gives us the courage to not feel alone anymore. Uh, Some of you question, you 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 wrestle with doubt, or whether you actually believe this stuff, whether Jesus and Christianity is actually true and worth following, and that is suffering. I've said this before. I had a conversation once with a professor of mine in seminary, Dr. Vern Poitras, and uh, you know I I've wrestled with doubt for the majority of my Christian life, and I remember I talked to him one time, and he said, you know, folks struggle with intellectual suffering. kind of plagued by doubts, not being able to make sense of uh, what faith in Jesus actually means. Some of you uh, live in shame. A lot of us live in shame because we can't find any motivation to do the basic things in life. And we don't tell anybody about it. Like, we can't find the motivation to just get up in the morning We can't find the motivation to go to class. We can't find the motivation to make our bed, right? And if you're honest, like for many of us, it's easier to just hide in a fantasy world of video games. Not telling, not let anybody come in to that because it's too vulnerable. It's too shame inducing. And that's real pain and it takes real vulnerability to work through, Um. I could list, uh, I'll list one more, but there's, I mean, we could go on and on and on. Some of you feel paralyzed by being good. You have created such a veneer and a facade and you have worked so hard at checking all the boxes and doing all the right things, but there's this secret about you that nobody else knows and you are so afraid of letting anybody know what that secret is and you are suffocating from the weight of keeping that secret. Each day, each morning, we wake up and the first thing that we encounter is ourselves. Can I get out of bed? Can I make my bed? Can I go to class? Can I engage a friend? Will these people love me? Will my relationships last? Will my marriage last? Like one after the other, they mount up, they mount up. Like all of life is suffering. There's a suffering component, a broken component to all of life. And we could turn over every rock in our lives and find some sort of suffering, some sort of us that needs deep healing. Um, So we need to expect suffering. The psalmist gives us, reframes for us an expectation in the Christian life that it's one of suffering. Um, And we need to learn how to see suffering, right? We need to recognize it in our own lives and in the lives of others. So in the same way that we're tempted to uh, shift to the extreme vision of Christianity as being one of mountaintop experiences, we don't need to be tempted to view suffering as simply just this extreme kind of impoverishment and abuse or whatever it may be, although that is suffering. We need to have eyes to see the curse as far as it's found under every rock in God's creation. Um, So we need to expect it, we need to see it. And lastly, I wanna look at how we approach it, right? How does this psalmist approach it? Um, I think in general, we approach suffering in three different ways. We deny it, we avoid it, uh, or we fear it. Um, we deny suffering, right? We, we simply refuse to see it, maybe. Maybe that's you. And, um, and we're trapped in the power of positive thinking. And at some point, usually in our lives, that kind of boils over because we're just constantly living in denial, and so oftentimes folks that live in denial are very angry people later in life because they won't reckon with the reality of what's going on. Uh, Others avoid it. Uh, Like anything that disrupts their mojo, they avoid. Um, If you're familiar at all with the Enneagram, um, Enneagram 7s, which are known for always wanting to kind of seize the day and for experiences, um, they're notorious for this because every day has to be a snow day or a holiday for for an Enneagram 7. And so um, even if their life is falling apart, uh, when they're at their worst, not always, but when a 7 is really unhealthy, they'll look the other way and go play uh, until they forget about it. And people are often kind of left in the wake of their avoidance. Uh, and then there's the fear tactic, right? There's those of us that fear it. So uh, your Your life is often lived in this like panicked frenzy you 're anxious as all get out trying to secure for yourself a life that's that 's free of suffering uh, that 's free uh, uh, of anything that would that would complicate any sense of security. Um, fear of anything bad happening overrides any and every rational faculty you have, and your life is just kind of driven by fear um and so I want us to look here just briefly as we close at, the, at, at two things that we see in terms of response to suffering. And the first is how the psalmist responds. Um, listen to the language that the psalmist uses. He says, we have had more than enough contempt, more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease more than enough of the contempt of the proud. This is someone who sees the suffering of the world and look at what the psalmist says, how he responds to the suffering of the world. He says earlier on in the passage, our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. The psalmist looks to God in his suffering. That's how the psalmist responds. This is a model of what faithful suffering actually looks like. Because if you notice here, there's this servant language that's going on in the psalm. This is a servant of God, faithful carrying out its duties, walking the road, listening to the songs, reciting the songs, and in that is experiencing suffering and yet remaining faithful by looking to God modeling faithful servanthood and suffering, right? A life that reckons with the reality of all the hardship that we experience, but isn't undone by them because the psalmist continually looks to God. So it's framing for us already three out of the four. The expectation on the journey is like, another word for this is just, it's hard. Being a Christian is hard and that's okay look to God. But it's not just, you know, the Psalms, as we said, the psalms always point us to Jesus. And this is where we're going to end tonight. The psalms always point us to Jesus and show us how Jesus fulfills it. The Bible doesn't just end with giving you something else to do. Like, hey, when you're suffering, when you're really down, just look to God. Like, The language, I love the language in this psalm of more than enough. If there's anything that really captures our cultural moment right now, at least me personally, and I imagine you, it's like we've had more than enough of this garbage, right? So many things need to change for good and for bad, right? I mean, I I caught about five seconds of the debate before I came here, and I had more than enough, more than enough. When will somebody, I mean, I love the, uh, my favorite campaign sign right now that I see in people's yards is uh, any functioning adult, 2020, any functioning adult. And I I really am craving that. I just want something, someone who's stately and respectable and mature. I don't really care what their name is. Um, I'm getting off point here. But we've had more than enough, right? We've had more than enough of seeing people of color marginalized and oppressed and abused and beaten and killed. We've had more than enough of trying to figure out the racial narrative of our country, what's, wrong, what's right, what's wrong, what's not. We need help, okay? And the psalmist turns to God because God gives help and God gives mercy. Um, but the psalmist also points us to Jesus, right? And it, and it shows us how God responds to suffering. And God responds to suffering By looking to us. The Bible doesn't just tell us to look to God. God responds to suffering by looking to us. So the psalmist is crying for mercy. And the beautiful thing about Christianity is that we are not left looking for God. God has looked for us and he has found us. And he has shown us the mercy that we so desperately need vertically, in terms of salvation, and he has shown us the roadmap through the Psalms to extend that mercy and grace horizontally, which we so need desperately now in this cultural moment. And so that's why Mary, in closing here, that's why Mary, in the Gospel of Luke chapter one, when she bursts out into song, when she realizes that she is with child, she's with the Savior, and she says in verse 47 and 48, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God has looked on us in Jesus. He looks at us in Jesus and through Jesus, and he always finds us, and he always shows us mercy. And so as we experience the same road that this psalmist experienced, I want you to know that you should take heart because even as you feel the ache of suffering, the unavoidable and inevitable ache of suffering, you will never be broken by that suffering because Jesus was broken by that suffering for us. And through that breaking, his mercy continually flows to us forever and ever. And we have eternal access to that mercy. And so my charge to you now, especially as as Karina prayed, right? As we enter into, just when things couldn't have gotten worse, right? As we enter into uh, a continued season of upheaval and unrest, like let this stain your heart, Let this stain your tongue, your words, your interactions, both as you look to God, knowing that he's looked to you in Jesus, and as you look to your neighbor and you model for them, you show them mercy and grace as we wrestle through this time. Uh, We desperately need it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll shoot you out into breakout groups. Um, Father, we give you thanks for the Psalms. We give you thanks that you have communicated to us in the form of poetry, that you've spoken and written to us uh, by metaphor and through song in ways that get into our DNA more quickly and more permanently and indelibly. And we pray that these words will shape us and stain us forever as we walk the road, um, as we attach ourselves in apprenticeship to the way of Jesus. Would these psalms guide us? And we pray especially that the good news of Jesus would inform our steps as we stumble and as we trip and as we suffer and as we see the sufferings of others. Would you give us mercy even now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.